Uh, if you're new to the Hallows Church, um, just to fill you in on kind of who we are and where our heart kind of rests as a family of faith in this city, is that essentially when we set out and started our church in 2012, we did so uh, embarking upon a journey to discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life. We want to discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life, and as we discover those dynamics, we want to display that. We want to display the difference that Jesus makes in how we parent and how we uh, befriend one another and how we raise our kids and how we go about our work and how we exercise creative juices and all those dynamics. We want to display the difference that Jesus makes in all of life. And the reason why we would say all of life is because we believe Jesus makes a difference in all of life, in every aspect of our lives. You see, Jesus is not a spoke in the wheel helping us move through this world. He's actually the hub holding all the other spokes together. And as Jesus is that hub holding all the other spokes together, he causes us to roll differently. We roll differently through the world that is as we are moving towards the world that is to come. And there's all kinds of ways in which we uh, flesh that out, in which we are discovering kind of how to roll with Jesus as we walk through this life and journey through this world. And one of the areas that uh, I want to call our attention today is it concerns how we envision and how we execute leadership in the life of the church. How leadership is to be envisioned and executed in the life of the church, Jesus makes all the difference in the world to how we do that. And oftentimes when leadership in the life of a local church goes sideways, it's because they've lost sight of that difference. Perhaps they've overlooked the difference Jesus intends to make and and how we go about leading others and how we go about being who God has called us to be in the city for the sake of the city in which we live. And so we think about this dynamic today because the big idea I want to put before you and unpack is that rather than leading from the top down, which is the common way to approach leadership in our society, in our community, in the world around us, rather than leading from the top down, as followers of Jesus, we are called to lead from the bottom up. We're called to lead from the bottom up. And Peter actually set this dynamic for us very early on in 1 Peter. If you turn back to chapter 2, he's going to give us a metaphor, an analogy, an image of what a local church should be and what God's church is. And he actually describes the church as a spiritual house. And as you know, if you've ever built a house, if you've ever worked in construction, or really you don't even have to have, have any experience in that, you know that when you build a house, you don't build from the top down. You don't start with the roof. That would be nonsense. When you build a house, you start with the foundation because the foundation is what will stabilize that house for the long haul. And the foundation is what's going to align the trajectory of that house so that it is built up in the way in which it should be. And so when Peter's talking about this spiritual house that that is being built in 1 Peter chapter 2, he, he describes the foundation He describes what we would call the cornerstone, that is the first stone laid in the new construction of our home to set that foundation, and he identifies who that is. Working from the bottom up, he says that the cornerstone, the most important aspect of the building of a spiritual house is Christ himself. So when we envision leadership in the life of our church here in the Hallows, that's that's where everything 
starts. We start with Jesus as our foundation, Jesus as the cornerstone, because he's the one who stabilizes us as a faith family. He's the one who holds us together when everything is being shaken up around us in the midst of a pandemic and in the midst of various other trials and struggles that we may endure as we live in a fallen world. But as he stabilizes us, he also sets the trajectory of our lives so that we are built up in the direction God intends for us to be so. And so when we think about our leadership structure, we start with Jesus as the foundation, but then on top of that, in order to grow in the right direction, we then look to the scriptures. We look to what is called the teachings of the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament. This dynamic is pointed out not only by Peter in different ways, as you've read through 1 Peter over the past couple of months, but it's also picked up by the Apostle Paul. So you consider Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul writes, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's households. It's the same imagery. He said, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. So you have Jesus, the cornerstone. Then you have the teaching of the prophets and the apostles, which is what makes up the Bible. The, way, the reason we are committed to the scriptures is because of where they come from. And they have passed to us through the work of the prophets in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Moses and David, and the apostles in the New Testament, like Peter and Paul and James and John. So we have the scriptures. And then on top of the scriptures... As you study particularly the New Testament, you find a, an emphasis on uh, a group of leaders in the church that we refer to as elders. They may also be called pastors or overseers. Those words in the New Testament are synonyms. They speak to the same role of responsibility in the life of the church. So you would say Jesus, the cornerstone, the foundation. Upon him, we submit to his word and we listen to the scriptures. Then the scriptures give birth to elders, pastors who are to be servant leaders in the life of the church. But then on top of the elders, you would have deacons. If, if elders are servant leaders in the life of the church, the way that we would envision deacons is we describe them as lead servants. The deacons are men and women who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the leaders of the church to serve in different ways, to help us meet different kinds of needs. When you think about who we are as a church, we have a group of elders, a group of servant leaders, and then we have a bunch of different deacons, lead servants, who are carrying out responsibilities as it relates to our missional communities, which are our small groups, as it relates to our music ministry and these dynamics, as it relates to all the ministry teams that make up and that are operating in the life of the church, ranging from justice and mercy initiatives to hospitality initiatives, to communication initiatives. All those teams, all those initiatives are led by lead servants known as deacons. And the reason why we have leaders, the reason why we have identifiable leaders in the life of a local church is because elders and deacons are then leading from the bottom up to do what? Well, they're leading from the bottom up to equip and to empower members of the church. You see, ministry, serving Jesus, isn't something that leaders do by themselves. 
Ministry and serving Jesus is what leaders equip every single disciple, every single member of a church to do. And so when you envision leadership in the life of the Hallows Church, I want you to think not top down. I want you to think bottom up. I want you to think Jesus, Bible, elders, deacons, members. And just as Paul would say in Ephesians that leaders are, Ephesians chapter 4, he describes how leaders are given to the church to equip the saints to do the works of the ministry. Now, this is somewhat of a paradigm shift for some of you who may have grown up in church or you've had experience in the church to some degree. Maybe you were a part of a church at some point in time that led from the top down. And it's going to be a paradigm shift for you as you sink into our church to, to recognize that we don't lead from the top down here in the hallows. We lead from the bottom up. To say that ministry isn't something that I do or that Mark does or that Brad does or that any other member of our team does. Ministry is what we do. And one of the things that this changes about how we envision life in the local church is that we recognize, you know, the church doesn't exist to provide leaders with a platform for building their brand or growing in their influence. The church was not created by God to give me an opportunity to lead. The church was created and designed by God so that leaders would come along and rather than leaders themselves being platformed and branded by a church, but so that leaders can platform and brand the church, so to speak. Meaning we exist to platform you guys in ministry. We exist to build you up to serve Jesus so that you can make the most of Jesus wherever you live and wherever you work, wherever you learn and wherever you play. The church doesn't exist for me. The church exists for us. And my leadership and Mark's leadership and all the elders' leadership and all the deacons' leadership, it's all designed to platform the church, to build up the church, to grow the church so that everyone is utilizing their gifts and their lives for the glory of Jesus in this city. So when we think about leaders, that's what we are getting after. And this also means that if you're going to grow as a leader, contrary to what may be common in your work environment, and contrary to what may be common in some other settings that you swim in during the week, if you're going to grow as a leader in God's eyes, you don't grow up, you grow down. You grow down because we lead from the bottom up. You grow in humility. You grow in deference. You grow in a willingness to pass influence on to others so that they may serve Jesus in the ways in which they are gifted and find joy in doing so. So leaders don't grow up in our church. Leaders grow down. And if any of you aspire to be an elder or a pastor within our church one day, that's the direction we're hoping you're growing. If you're not growing downward, you will not be considered for eldership in the life of the church. If you're not growing in humility, you will not be encouraged to lead in different kinds of ways. And so we lead from the bottom up. And so just with that foundation, with that image in mind, as you get a little bit of an idea of how we envision leadership in the life of, church, of the church, let's think about how it's executed. 
Because what Peter's doing here, he's not talking about all the areas of leadership in the life of the church. He's focusing in on a very important aspect of leadership in the life of the church, and that concerns elders. And he's speaking directly to those who would serve like me as an elder or a pastor in a local church. And what we are being called to in this passage is something that each and every one of us need to be aware of because these are the types of standards, these are the types of expectations you should hold all the elders, all the pastors to in our leadership and in our ministry. And so don't think, well, I'm not an elder. This passage doesn't apply to me. No, it does. And you will see how it does in a variety of ways. Think, because this passage is addressing elders and pastors, it, it concerns you greatly. Because if you are going to commit to a local church, if you're going to run with Jesus in community, you need to have an idea of what types of leaders you should look for and what types of leadership you should lean upon as you are growing in your faith and serving Jesus in the context of the church. So he zeroes in on elders here, and a guy by the name of Tom Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, summarizes this passage in a helpful way. He says what, what's happening here is that this passage describes the type of shepherd leadership that is needed to assure the survival of the church in trying times. He's picking up on what we've picked up on in our journey through 1 Peter, that, that Peter's writing in a context and in a situation where people are struggling, where the church is hurting. They're hurting primarily due to social ostracization and various forms of persecution, but they're hurting nonetheless. And Peter's saying, in light of that, leadership is needed more, not less. We need to understand what leadership, what is expected of leadership more in trying times than we do necessarily when things are going well or, or we're enjoying prosperity. He's saying, look, these are the types of leaders that churches need if churches are going to survive during trying times. Now, we would say whether that trying time comes in the form of, a, of persecution or that trying time comes in the form of a pandemic where you have all types of different conversations happening about how the pandemic should be handled. You have all types of different opinions about how we should navigate this situation and how the church should be assembled, how the church shouldn't be assembled, and all those dynamics, those conversations are happening. We have an election coming up that has people sitting on pins and needles with much anxiety and fear, worrying what the outcome may be and what the ramifications may be. And so these are indeed trying times, and it's all the more reason why we need to focus on what types of leaders we should be and what type of leadership we need to cultivate in the life of any local church, but especially here with, with the Hallows Church. And so with that in mind, let me zero in on kind of some of the elements that are being picked up on here. First, what I want you to see is that the type of leaders that are needed during trying times are accountable leaders. Accountable leaders. See, this passage, when Peter turns the corner in verse 1 and he says, I want to exhort the elders. This is flowing out of what he just stated about accountability for all Christians. If you look earlier in chapter 4, verse 17, this is what he said. He reminds Christians, for the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And so if there's this judgment that is being uh, targeting God's household, then 
when that judgment comes, where does it begin? Where does it start? Well, it starts with the leadership. And this is why Peter would sh shift from that line of thinking to a passage dealing with elders, because judgment starts with God's people. And among God's people, it starts with elders. It starts with pastors. The backdrop for 1 Peter chapter 5 is Ezekiel, where where the leadership in Israel are referred to as elders and they are not leading very well. They're not leading very well. And because they are not leading very well, the people of Israel aren't remaining faithful to what God has called them to do and to be. And as a result, judgment would come to them. And we're told in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 6, that that judgment began with the elders in the elders who were sitting in front of the temple, the elders who were serving God in the temple, that's where it all started. And so when we talk about leadership, we want to recognize that what we need are accountable leaders. Leaders who are sober-minded in knowing the responsibility they carry before God and before others. We cannot have pastors and elders who are oblivious to the fact that they will be held to a higher degree of accountability than other people in the church. This is what is written in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, when the church is encouraged, obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, as those who will give an account for how faithfully they have discharged their responsibilities, how faithfully they have loved God's people, how faithfully they have set to lead God's people, even when things get hard. And so we need leaders who are accountable, leaders who recognize what Peter would get after later in verse 4 when he alludes to the fact that Jesus is coming back. And he says, the chief shepherd one day is going to appear and when he comes, he's going to reward those who are faithful, and he's going to judge those who are not faithful. And, and so we need elders who are aware of that. We need leaders who are sober-minded and thinking about the accountability they share before God. I often tell people who have an aspiration to become an elder or a pastor, I, I like to ask, are you sure? Do you really want to be an elder? Do you really want to be a pastor? Are you aware of what that means for you in relationship with your God and how you go about serving as an elder or a pastor in a local church? If we're supposed to count the cost of discipleship before we choose to follow Jesus, we should certainly count the cost of leadership and think about what it means to, to serve in a leadership capacity and to exert influence in the kingdom of God. So we have accountable leaders, but we also need interdependent leaders. Peter puts an emphasis here in verse 1 on the plural. He says, I, the eld I exhort the elders among you. And then he goes on to identify himself as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. See, Peter wore two hats as he's writing these words. On one hand, he was an apostle. He was one of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. He was one of the OG disciples who walked with Jesus through this world. So he became an apostle, which meant he had a unique role to play in God's kingdom, a unique role to play to be used by God to write letters that would serve the church for the rest of her existence. And so he was an elder. I mean, he was an apostle on one hand, which is alluded to, to there when 
We're told that he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ, but he was also an elder. He was also a pastor, so he wore two hats. He served primarily in the church at Jerusalem. He was a pastor overseeing souls in the city of Jerusalem, and he writes this letter to a network of churches who were led by a variety of elders stretched across Asia Minor, the part of the world that we would know as, as Turkey today. And so you have this emphasis here. The reason why I point that out is because the assumption and the default position for leadership in the local church should always be plural, not single. Meaning lead, we have leaders lead churches, not leader leads churches. A plurality of interdependent leaders serves local churches best. Now, years for much of the 20th century, I think pastoral leadership was kind of went, went sideways in this regard in some ways. Because for much of the 20th century, pastoral leadership in American churches, they emphasized singularity. Churches believed that they could find the leader. If they could get the pastor, then the pastor will lead them into a glorious future of growth and impact. And so they put a lot of emphasis on the guy or the pastor or the leader. And I believe part of that obsession that spilled out of the 20th century with the leader, I think that was more of a reflection of the American culture than it was with the culture of God's kingdom. You see, as Americans, we love individuals. And when it comes to thinking about individuals, we love individual heroes. This is why for much of the 20th century, a lot of our movies emphasized single heroic guys. You had John Wayne. You had others like the Lone Ranger. You had Rambo. And then you had John McCain. You had all these single guys who were leading out and doing these heroic feats to rescue people and to do something phenomenal. And and I think our infatuation with a heroic individual it spilled over into how we started envisioning and thinking about church in our context. But then a great thing happened at the turn of the 20th century when we stepped into the 20th first century. And what happened in a lot of art that was being produced, especially movies, is that we kind of moved away from John Wayne and we stepped into the Avengers, right? And the Avengers, you have this dynamic where several gifted people are coming together and they are interdependently helping one another accomplish a shared mission, accomplish a shared goal. And I want to put before you today that the Avengers is a far more biblical model for leadership in the life of the church than John Wayne is. It's a far more biblical model, not because elders are superheroes, but because elders are interdependent. Because we need others to come alongside us as we are leading because no single leader possesses all the gifts necessary to benefit and to bless a local church. The only one who could do that is Jesus, who is, of course, leading us, but we are leading as his under-shepherds, as, his, as uh, elders and pastors appointed by him to do so. And so when you think about leadership in the life of the church, we're not looking for a single person to take us into a glorious future. We're looking for gifted leaders who can come alongside one another and interdependently walk into the future by faith, blessing the church as they did so. And so you have interdependent leaders with the emphasis on the plural there, but then you also have what's called identifiable leaders. We need accountable leaders. We need interdependent leaders. We need identifiable leaders. Twice, Peter refers to leaders as those being among you. 
He says among you in verse 1 and in verse 2, meaning leaders of local churches should share an identifiable relationship with those that they are leading. There needs to be an identifiable relationship between the people who make up a local church and the leaders of those local churches. And so he points this out because really a Christian who might have bought into the idea that's been really populated, popular in post-modernity that this approach to Christianity that says, I'm a part of the big C church. I'm not really focusing on little C churches. I'm more of a global Christian than a local Christian. Understand that that mentality, Christians who do not, who detach themselves from identifiable leadership, they are not in alignment with God's will. They are not in alignment with what God intends for his people as we journey through this world together. That we are not to be global, abstract Christians. We are to be local, concrete Christians who are engaged in real relationships with real people who are following Jesus together. And in those relationships, there is an identifiable relationship shared between leaders of a local church and members of a local church. Anything less than that is less than Christianity. Anything less than that is less than what God envisioned when he sent Jesus to live and to die and to rise again, not for an individual, but for a people, not for a person, but for a community. And these, this global community is to show up in concrete settings in local places all around the world. And so we need identifiable leadership. A guy by the name of Tabidi M. Anyabwil, he said this, he said, a healthy member gives himself to the Lord and then to the minister of the Lord, that is to the leaders of a local church, knowing that this is God's will. Leadership in the local church is established by God for the blessing of his people. If we're leading from the bottom up, that is intended to be a blessing for everyone involved. But I know, I'm not naive, I know that some of you have had terrible experiences with leadership in a local church. And your experience with those leaders hasn't been a blessing to you. In some ways, it might have even been a curse. Which is why this fourth dynamic is essential to leadership here in the hallows, and it is essential to leadership in churches everywhere. And that is we also need exemplary leadership. We need exemplary leadership. Notice what he says next. He says in verse 3, he refers to leaders as being examples, that they're setting a pattern for others to trace, that they are exemplary in their leadership, and that they are giving people something to aspire to as it relates to how we love Jesus, how we follow Jesus, how we are serving Jesus, how we are going about our work, how we are leading our families, how we are befriending others, that we are setting an example in this direction so that people want to follow. They want to follow the leaders of a local church because they are exemplary. This is affirmed elsewhere in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. I should be able to stand before you 
Mark should be able to stand before you. John should be able to stand before you. Kyle should be able to stand before you. George should be able to stand before you. Jason, Jeff, David, all the elders in the life of a church, they should be able to stand before you and say, imitate our faith. We are setting an example because we understand that many people are visual learners. And it's not enough for you just to be told to live the Christian life. You are to be shown how to live the Christian life. And you should see that when you look to me. You should see that when you look to every other elder in the life of the church. And if we're not showing you a faith worthy of imitation, we are not being a blessing to you. We are experiencing a breakdown in our leadership, a breakdown in our ministries. The Apostle Paul would say the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He would write to the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm following Jesus to set a pattern for you to trace. And we say the same thing, imitate us as we imitate Christ. We are to set an example for you to follow. When it comes to elders and being a leader in the life of the local church, you understand that far more emphasis in the New Testament is placed on character than competency. And so what we need are leaders. Yeah, competency helps, but what's infinitely more important than that is character. A person's character is what's going to last forever. Our competencies as, as preachers, all that's going to be rendered moot one day. I'm not going to preach in heaven. I'm not teaching the Bible in heaven. I'm not doing a lot of those things that are competency-related in heaven. That's just not what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be out of a job, so to speak, in heaven. But what's going to follow me into heaven is my character. It's the quality of Christ's likeness that is growing in my life. And so when we look for elders and leaders and pastors in the life of our church, yeah, competency is good, but character is great. So we want Leaders who are setting an example for us. Leaders who are faithful to Jesus. Leaders who love people. Leaders who refrain from various things that soil leadership and soil character as we journey through this life. So exemplary leadership is needed, but then you one other dynamic to this is shepherd leaders. When you get into verse 2 or you jump back to verse 2, leaders are told to shepherd as those who oversee. We are shepherds who oversee. Now, the imagery of shepherds here, that's applied to elders in verse 2, and it's referenced to Jesus in verse 4. This is a common metaphor for leadership among God's people. This reaches back into the Old Testament, where leadership was in large part envisioned by way of shepherding and shepherds. And, and it was an intense picture. When you think shepherds in, in the Old Testament and you think shepherds in this moment, don't think some of the, the pristine pastel pictures of, of a Caucasian shepherd carrying a little lamb on his arm as he's walking down the road. No, think someone who must be tough, someone who must be tender, someone who must be strong and approachable. This is the idea of shepherding here because shepherds did at least three things in the Old Testament. And we do at least three things as elders and pastors in the life of the church. That shepherds were expected to guard the flock. Shepherds were expected to feed the flock. And shepherds were expected to lead the flock. So when you think about guarding the flock, you're thinking about a shepherd leader who is watching out over people and who is aware of any threats that may be coming at the church. 
threats that may be approaching disciples and tripping disciples up, that shepherds in the Old Testament, they literally would fend their, defend their flocks from predators who would come in and, and attack them. And so David, there's stories of David, a shepherd leader who is slaughtering a bear and he's slaughtering a wolf and he's defending, guarding the flock in that way. And there's a very real sense when elders like us, we are to guard the flock, we are to protect God's people. And as we keep reading through chapter 5, we're going to see that there is a lion who is seeking to devour those. There is a lion who's seeking to deceive people and to tear people down. And as an elder, I'm to be, I need to be aware of that so that I might guard the flock and know where how the enemy is scheming, know how the enemy is prowling around God's people, seeking to trip them up and to cause them to not flourish in their faith, but flounder in it. And so we as elders, we guard the sheep. And one of the things that I think we're, that I'm impressed to share with you this morning about, one of the areas that we must protect you from is growing disillusioned in your faith in Jesus. I think disillusionment is one of the most common threats Christians are facing right now. You see, disillusionment is that thing that arises when, when our expectations are undermined by our experiences. And so a person comes to faith in Jesus, and they have certain expectations about how life should go after that moment. But then their experiences kind of contradict that expectation because they're finding themselves being tempted still. They're finding themselves having a hard time and still having to suffer in this life. And they're wondering, well, I thought I was a Christian now. Shouldn't Jesus protect me from hard things? And that expectation is undermined by experiences, and that's when disillusionment arises. You know this feeling if you've ever watched a commercial. You know this feeling if you've ever seen an advertisement promising one thing, and then you buy on it, and you bite on it, and it delivers a completely different thing. Uh, I can't help but think about Red Lobster. You know, every year, Red Lobster, they promote something called Lobster Fest. And Lobster Fest is one of the most disillusioning things out there. Uh, because when Red Lobster starts pushing these commercials and advertising for Lobster Fest, they, they roll out a major marketing, uh, marketing strategy, tons of commercials, and these commercials are bright and beautiful. They have luscious lobsters that are being cracked open and meats blossoming out of the shell, close-ups on crab legs that just whet your appetite, and you're like, I want that. But then you go there, and, and you order something from the Red Lobster, and, and disillusionment settles in, right? Because what you expected because of the commercial was quickly undermined by your experience. You order some crab legs, they bring it to the table, and you grab a crab leg, and instead of snapping and cracking and meat just blossoming out of the shell, you, it just kind of bends, Right? And then it kind of tears. You have to tear your crab legs at the Red Lobster. And then when you finally tear it open, you don't find meat just blooming out of it. You just kind of shriveled up like the, the crab just hung out in the sun a little too long before it was taken up. And so disillusionment's that dynamic that arises when our expectations are undermined by our experiences. And so as an elder, one of my sacred responsibilities is to teach you from God's word what to expect as you journey through the world that is. That I am to fill your expectations up with biblical explanations so that disillusionment doesn't befall you when 
life starts to go a different way than you thought. When faith in Jesus doesn't mean that every day is sweeter than the day before, but faith in Jesus means, yeah, life is still hard, but I've got Jesus. Yeah, I'm still crying, but I've got Jesus. Yeah, I lost my job, but I got Jesus. And so one of our sacred responsibilities, one of the things that we want to guard and protect disciples from is from growing disillusioned in their faith. And we do that by teaching you about the reality of life as presented to us in the Bible, which is a second dynamic. Not only do we guard the flock, we are to feed the flock. We are to feed the flock gospel realities. We are to feed the flock truths from Scripture. Peter knows this well, which is why earlier in chapter 2, he describes the Christian as a newborn infant who's desiring the pure milk of the Word so that we may grow up into our salvation. That if we're going to grow, we've got to eat. If we're going to grow healthy, we need to eat well. Which is why it is imperative for myself and Mark and other elders in the life of the church to open up our Bibles every week, to read the Bible every week, to explain the Bible every week, to apply the Bible every week. Now, when I feed my kids at home, they're... There are times when they are given meals that I know will be good for them, but I also know they're not going to enjoy very much. And there are going to be sermons, there are going to be texts, there's going to be teaching in the life of the church that you might not enjoy very much. But just as a kid has to eat broccoli, you need to feast on the full counsel of God's Word. You need to hear from the Scriptures about all that God has for us there, and not just some of it that we might prefer that might be sweeter to our palates. So we guard the sheep, we feed the sheep, and then lastly, we lead the sheep. We're guarding, we're feeding, we're leading so that we together can become all that God intends for us to be as a local church. That we might make the gospel visible to the watching world. That we might be the church that is laid out for us in the New Testament, whose culture is characterized by all that we see in our study of the Bible. And so we guard, we feed, we lead to become all that God intends for us. But then also in verse 2, Peter qualifies these types. He's saying these are the types of leaders we need. We need accountable leadership, interdependent leadership, identifiable leadership. We need exemplary leadership and shepherd leadership. And we need those leaders to lead a certain way. And he gives us three qualifications. He says, first, I I want leaders who will serve willfully, not begrudgingly that I should want to serve you each week. I should want to do the things that I'm privileged to do as a pastor. It's not something that I should begrudgingly do. It's something I should willfully do. You should have leaders who want to serve you, who want to bless you, who want to feed you, who want to guard you, who want to lead you in the direction that Jesus is taking you. This is something we do willfully, not begrudgingly. But it's also something we must do generously and not greedily. Perhaps one of the ways in which the church in America suffered most is because leaders have been marked more by greed than generosity. Leaders have aspired to local churches based on what they can get from those local churches rather than what they might give to those local churches. What they can get from them financially, what they can get from them in terms of admiration and respect, what they can get from them in terms of influence and all of these things. And Peter's saying, look, we need leaders who are serving generously and not greedily. Now, you might think that that word greed there focuses mainly on financial matters, and that's certainly part of it. 
And there are many other verses in the New Testament that warn leaders from from coveting material wealth and pursuing financial gain and being motivated by money in ministry. There's lots of verses there. But notice that the word greedily is contrasted with the word eagerly, which kind of broadens the application so that, yeah, let's don't be greedy for money. Let's be generous with our money. But it also means we want leaders who are eagerly generous with their time, eagerly generous with their talents, eagerly generous with the love that they have for people. We want leaders who aren't seeking to get from the church, but are seeking to give to the church, to pour out our lives for the flock, to pour out our lives for what God is doing among us as a faith family. And then the third dynamic there is that we want leaders who lead and serve to empower rather than to domineer. That our leaders should empower us, not dominate us. And no doubt the background of that phrase in verse 2, that emphasis on not domineering others, that is drawn from what Jesus taught his disciples in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus would call the disciples over to him and say this, He said, you know that those who who are regarded as rulers or leaders of the Gentiles lord it over them. They dominate them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. You are not supposed to lead from the top down. He says, on the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying leadership in my kingdom, leadership in my church doesn't flow from the top down, it flows from the bottom up. And from the bottom up, bottom up leadership emphasizes empowering others, not dominating them. Leading from the bottom up emphasizes deferring influence so that others may exert influence. I love what Stephen Colbert had to say about improv comedy. He gave a commencement speech at his alma mater, Northwestern, and he, and he talked about improv, and, and he explained some of the rhythms of improv that I think apply well to this aspect of leadership in the local church. Listen to what he says. He says, he says now there are very few rules about improvisation, but one of the things I was taught early on is that you are not the most important person in the scene. Everybody else is. And if they are the most important people in the scene, you will naturally pay attention to them and serve them. But the good news is you're in the scene too. So hopefully to them, you're the most important person and they will serve you. He said, no one is leading. You're all following the follower, serving the servant. He's saying you cannot win improv and life is improvisation. And when it comes to leadership in the local church, that's what we need. Leaders who see everybody else as the most important people in the room. Leaders who see everyone else as the most important people in the scene. Who are deferring influence, who are empowering others, who are setting others up for success in how they live for Jesus, wherever they live, work, learn, and play. Essentially, this dynamic, this approach to leadership is exactly how Jesus leads us, right? Jesus leads us in such a way that isn't dominating, but it's very empowering. Jesus leads us in such a way that isn't greedy, but is generous. So generous that Jesus would pour out his life for the sake of his people. 
Jesus, this chief shepherd who, would, who did not go to the cross begrudgingly, but who went to the cross willfully to give up his life for sinners like you and me so that we might become a part of God's people in the world that is moving towards the world that is to come. Leading from the bottom up is how Jesus led. Leading from the bottom up is the difference Jesus makes to our leadership in the local church. And I believe that if this approach to leadership flows out into how you lead everywhere else, the world will be blessed because of it. Society needs leaders who are leading from the bottom up, not the top down. So you think about that as you consider your leadership in your homes. You think about that when you think about your leadership in your classroom. You think about that when you think about your leadership at work in whatever capacity your work takes. Leading from the bottom up is a blessing to everyone. But leading from the top down can be a burden for everyone. So let's pray in this direction today. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider the difference Jesus makes in our leadership. We thank you, Jesus, for living and dying and rising again. We thank you, Jesus, for coming not to be served, but to serve. And to you give your life as a ransom for many. God, I pray that your bottom-up leadership, I pray that that would be mirrored by us here in the Hallows Church. I pray that you would give us grace for that to become a reality. That you would give us grace to lead from the bottom up, not the top down. Would you bless people in our church as a result? And would you bless people in our city as a result? All for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.